Uh, Father, we ask that uh, you would gently but deeply pour out your Holy Spirit upon us at this time. Pour out your Holy Spirit upon us. Father, not, not so we can have some mystical experience or so all of a sudden we'll have a different emotion. Father, we ask that you would pour out your Holy Spirit upon us so that as we read your word and think about your word, that your Holy Spirit would bring your word to the very center of who we are, that your Holy Spirit would write your word on the command center of our lives, the hearts of our lives, so that in our daily lives, we will bear much fruit with great endurance that brings you great glory. And this we ask in Jesus' name, your Son and our Savior. Amen. Please be seated. So, um, for some of you, um, probably not for most of you, but for some of you, what I'm about to say might strike you all as a little bit weird and maybe make it too weird for you to want to listen to anything else that I have to say. Uh, but I, I believe uh, I believe the devil is real. I believe there really is a devil. And I believe there really are demons. Um, and I not only believe that there is a devil and that there are demons, but I believe that uh, demons have interactions with human beings and human institutions, that demons affect how we live our lives and how even nations live their lives. I believe that Human beings can be possessed by a demon, although I think that's probably fairly rare. But I believe that um, demons can oppress and they, well, once again, they can influence us. In fact, I think every single human being, to some small extent at least, has experienced uh, the demonic demons in their lives. Because I think three of the things that demons do in particular is they speak to us, uh, maybe just by thoughts or impressions, and they they focus on accusation, on slander, and on blasphemy. And I know blasphemy is a very, very old-fashioned word, which is very, very easily and very, very commonly mocked. But accusation really just means that when we have seasons in our lives, and maybe some of you are in this season right now, where it seems as if there's thoughts in your head that are just accusing you of things. You're too angry, you're no good, you're too ugly, you're too proud, you're too much of a failure, you're doomed. That's not only accusation, in, in many cases it's, it's slander. In some cases it might not be slander, maybe you really do have some anger issues that you have to deal with. But the accusatory spirit isn't something that leads you to actually want to try to deal with it or seek repentance. But it's something that as you go through your day, even though you might be standing nice and straight and be very upright, but inside, as you know, this message of you're a failure, you're ugly, you're too old, you're too young, you're too poor, nobody notices you, and as you go through your day, increasingly, even if your body is straight, your, your spirit, your mind, your heart is increasingly bent over and weakened. And blasphemy is just really another way of saying false things about, that's just describing saying false things against God. And for those of us who are followers of Jesus, then not only does the slander and the accusation come within us, but at the same time, there's this sense 
that God can't do anything about it. That it might be all right for God to pour out his Holy Spirit or, or to speak to other people and do mighty things through them, but that's not your fate. Your fate is to be doomed. Your fate is to be bereft. Your fate is to be completely and utterly unhappy and unsuccessful and unnoticed and diminished. And I think some of you might think, George, you're really overdoing it. But I think there's many people here who say, how did he know that that's what my week's been like? And how did he know that that's what it was like for me as I came into this church and even now? And so I think many of us know what it's like to have intercourse, so to speak, with demons and devils and evil spirits. And um, because the devil doesn't want us to know the truth about ourselves and he doesn't want us to know the truth about God, it's often even harder when we want to do something connected to God. It's often even harder when we come to church. It's often, in fact, many people when they say, you know, when I stopped going to church, I felt so much better. Well, that's not because you are better. It's just because (laughs) you've listened to blasphemy about who God is and, and how he sees you and what he can do for you and what he's doing within you. So this text that we're going to look at today, and if you don't have a Bible with you, we're going to look at the Bible. It's 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 3. It'd be a great help uh, to you and to me if you were to open your Bibles or fire up your Bibles if you're using phones. Uh, and uh, the devil will say when you fire up your Bible, I'm just going to do my, check my Facebook update really quickly or see what's on Twitter. It's the devil speaking. <laughs> it's not God. If you fire up your phone, that's one of the nice things about having this. It's actually impossible to be tempted to check Facebook when you're using this ancient technology called paper. And um, uh, by the way, I, in, my, my, in my daily devotions, I use my phone. So I'm not, I'm not, I'm not dissing uh, electronics. There's extra Bibles here if you don't have a Bible of your own, or if you know that you're too tempted to check Facebook or Twitter, and then that might help you uh, actually listen to God's Word better. So the text today uh, is a very, very good help to us in, in uh, just thinking about this. Um, uh, how is it that God sees followers of Jesus? How is it that God sees the world? And so uh, the text begins like this. And by the way, usually I don't say this, and usually the translations are very good, but there's a bit of a, a mistake in the translation or an, an unhelpful bit in the early part of this translation that I'm going to point out. It's very rare. One of the reasons I use the ESV, because it's very rare, but there actually is a, they've put the colon in the wrong place in the translation, at least according to the learned commentaries that I have read, not because George is a great Greek scholar. (laughs) I stand on the shoulders of people who are vastly smarter and more learned than I am. So chapter 6, verse 3, 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 3, we put no obstacle in anyone's way so that no fault may be found with our ministry. And uh, if, you know, this is part of a book, and he's talking about this new covenant ministry, uh, it's where you tell people about what Jesus has done and how God loves us and sent his son to die on the cross for us and how it's for people and how God has done everything that's required to make human beings right with himself. We add absolutely nothing to it. Human beings want to add something to it. Human beings want to feel worthy. But the new, the message, this ministry is that we, we don't do anything to make ourselves more worthy to God. We don't do anything to make ourselves less worthy to God. We've already done lots of sin. We do not, we contribute nothing. God does everything. It's through Jesus 
that God reconciles the world to himself. And those who have been reconciled to God, God actually makes his appeal to Ottawa, to Angola, to Zambia, to Hong Kong, to the B people, to, Af- to Afghanistan, to Kazakhstan. God makes his appeal to the gay community, the transgendered community, the Rockcliffe community, the university. God makes his appeal through ordinary people like you and me who have been reconciled to God by what Jesus has done on the cross. And that's what he's talking about. That appeal that actually, I know it sounds like God's made a huge mistake using people like us, but that's his plan, not our plan. That's what it says just before this. And so just uh, so just to go back, verse 3 again, we put no obstacle in anyone's way so that no fault may be found with our ministry, but as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way. And what that's really meaning here is uh, we're commending ourselves as servants of God. <laughs> it's as servants of God that we commend ourselves. It's The, the emphasis is on, on what God is doing and what God has called us to. And then here's the mistake. It has the colon after way in the English Standard Version, but it should actually be after by great endurance. Um, in fact, Andrew, do you want to put the first point up? Or when you get back, you can put the first point up. And could you add to that point when you put it up, greatly endure, eventually. As servants of God, we greatly endure. And it's that's really how it begins. As servants of God, we greatly endure. And then it's going to look at these terrible things that happen. It's going to look at different things that are part of endurance. It's going to look at the way the world understands us compared to reality. And the, the emphasis is that as servants of God, we greatly endure in all of these things. The colon's in the wrong place. But now that you sort of just look at all of these things that befall us. Verse 4. In afflictions, in hardships, in calamities, in beatings, in imprisonments, in riots, in labors. And actually in the original language, the word in is before each of these words. And for English style reasons, they've, they've taken it out. But it's in the original language, it, it is in, infli- in afflictions, in hardships, in calamities, in beatings, in imprisonments in riots, in labors. Another word, way to understand that is, is struggles. In sleepless nights, in hunger. Now just sort of pause before we go any, anywhere further. Um, if we're really dealing with great affliction in our life, if we are going through a very, very hard time Maybe we are going through a great time of hardship as we're trying to deal with our studies. You're worried that you're in engineering and you're just not keeping up and you're going to be kicked out of the program. Uh, maybe, um, you know, whatever it is, it's a hardship in a relationship. Calamities. I mean, that's just a calamity happens that you've been promised some money or you've been promised a job and it gets withdrawn from you. And it's a calamity. You were counting on that. Um, not many of us maybe have been beaten, or at least not this week. Uh, but probably if we were actually to talk with each other for any length of time, we would discover that some people are still dealing with the beatings they had at different points in time in their life. Um, imprisonments isn't something that many of us have to deal with, at least for being Christian. Although it might very well be that some of you have done time behind jail. The first time that I ever went to visit somebody in a prison, 
There was another person from my congregation also in the jail. They looked unbelievably shocked that I knew their secret. In many places, I mean, it's, it's now, now, you know, to be, to be gay or transgendered is, is, is to be out and to be proud. But even back in those days when people were very deeply ashamed of that, I think people who spent time in jail were families who had members doing a hard time. They were a far deeper shame about that. When I was in my previous congregation, I learned about people who had children who were gay or transgendered long before I heard of the, heard of the people whose kids weren't working in Alberta in the oil rigs, but in fact were doing hard time in jail. In riots and labors and sleepless nights and hunger. If you're dealing with any of these things in even the smallest way, the devil is going to work you over like crazy. And maybe right now he's working you over like crazy. If I was a real Christian, I wouldn't be going through this time. If I actually was really a success, I wouldn't be going through this time. If I actually prayed more and just was you know, far better at following holiness, my marriage wouldn't be in the hard time it is right now. If, if I, you know, there's just something wrong with me, there's something cursed about me, there's something broken about me, there's something twisted in me that can never possibly change, I am doomed. And if you're going through any of those things in that list, and it's a pretty terrible list of nine things, then the devil will speak in very powerful ways about you. But how did it begin? Just look up again. And Andrew, do you have that point up there now? Yeah. As servants of God, we greatly endure. I'm going to talk to you about this a little bit more, but it's not saying I greatly endure because, you know, I, 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 I'm well educated. I'm not greatly enduring because I'm really good at praying. I'm not greatly enduring because I'm a superstar. I'm not greatly enduring because I'm male or because I'm female or because I'm white or because I'm not white or because I'm straight or because I'm gay. I'm not enduring because of any of these things. And it's not, it's, it's when we, it's when the, it's when we take our eyes off of who we are in Christ that we have a hard time enduring. It's as a servant of God that I endure. Talk about this more in a moment. I mean, Jesus didn't pick me because I'm a superstar. I'm not a superstar. He doesn't pick you because you're a superstar. I know your mom told you you were a superstar, but you're not. <laughs> That's one of the hard things. You go on a date relationship or something, or you get married. Your mommy told you you were a superstar, but why is it the other person doesn't think you're quite the same superstar after you've been married for a certain length of time? You're not a superstar. It's not that we have this great endurance because there's something special about us. It's because God has made me his servant and called me to be his servant. And it's when, as the gospel grips me and I understand that I'm not called to tower like a superhero or cower like a loser like a doomed person. But God has chosen people. If you go back and read 1 Corinthians chapter 6, it's very, very powerful. One of the things that's very powerful in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 is he mentions people who are prostitutes, you know, who are gay, you know, who are straight, who are like robbers, a whole pile of 
this, you know, all these terrible things. And then he ends it by saying, and such were some of you. And such were some of you. And then he goes on to talk about ministry and change life in Christ. He doesn't call people because they're so brilliant superstar. He calls you because he loves you. And he knows better than you your failings and your shames. God knows those better than you do. And still, and Jesus knew those better than you do. He knows them now and still he went to the cross to die for you. The fact of the matter is, is that the devils, the demons, actually don't tell you how bad the doom was before you gave your life to Christ. They just have you dabble in the puddles, <laughs> the shallow puddles of your trouble, just enough to depress you. But at the same time, the devils don't tell you how greatly and eternally, how the heights and the depths of God's love for you and Jesus' death upon the cross for you. That's part of the devil's blasphemy to keep from you. In fact, your doom was vastly worse than your worst nightmare. And your destiny in Jesus is unimaginably greater than your most proud thought. Let's continue. Verse 6. He does these nine things, but then he, he takes a pause before going into some of the other things by what it means to endure and how it is that we learn to endure and what we hold on to in endurance by purity, by knowledge. And that primarily means knowledge of God and knowledge of ourselves in light of who God is, by patience and kindness, fruits of the Holy Spirit, by the Holy Spirit himself, by genuine love, also a fruit of the Holy Spirit, by truthful speech, and there in the original language, the, the, imposition, the, the idea is it's not just mere truthful speech, although it is truthful speech, it's a fine translation, but it's, in, it, it's, it's not only truthful speech in general, it's truthful speech in telling people about what the Word actually says and who Jesus actually is. But through truthful speech, where was I? And the power of God. And the power of God. You endure by the power of God. You are the servant of the God who formed the universe who keeps it in its courses and will bring all things to its proper end. And then, and then it gets back, well, it sort of pauses, uh, verse 7, with the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and for the left. Those of you who know your Bible, it's a bit of an image uh, to Ephesians, a letter he's going to read, write a little bit after this where he develops it in Ephesians chapter 6. But then he goes back to this whole thing and the different ways that the demons, and not just demons, the world itself, which I'll talk about in a moment, can talk about us through honor and dishonor, through slander and praise. We are treated as imposters, and yet we're not imposters. God knows that we're true. We're treated as if we're unknown, completely and utterly invisible, unimportant. The eyes of the world, we are unknown, we are invisible, we are unimportant. And yet well-known by God. 
as dying. In other words, as we're just beginning, we're diminishing, we're diminishing, we're, we're getting less and less and less. But behold, we live. <laughs> Read chapter 3 and 4 and 5 of, of 2 Corinthians. So our outer, weight, our outer self from the perspective of the world is wasting away. Our inner self, that part of us which is grasped by God, which will live for eternity, is, 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 is being prepared for an eternal way to glory. Behold, as punished and yet not killed, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as poor yet making many rich, as having nothing yet possessing everything. Very, very, very powerful passage of Scripture. And, you know, not only is it, you know, it's not just the reason that the demons and our own flesh can, can be so beat up that when we're in fact being treated as invisible, when people overlook us, when they don't notice us, and, and, uh, you know, this is especially a problem for people as, as, you know, it's funny, it's a problem for people when they're young, they feel like when they're teenagers, or maybe young adults that the, you know, the people don't notice you. You know, you, you go into a work placement and the boss comes in where the, the co, the workers come in and the workers are coming in. They're looking for the boss. The boss comes in. He's looking for the important people and the student interns are like wall, well, they're wall weeds, wallflowers, but not as pretty. And they're like wall weeds and nobody notices them. In fact, all you do is you try to trim the weeds, get rid of the weeds. They wonder, who are those people doing here? I don't know who they are. Are they important? We feel invisible. The same thing happens to us as we go older. In fact, most of our life we're living with the fact that we're going to be viewed as invisible. And, and in, in the eyes of the world, the option is you tower or you, and there's two different versions of this, you cower or you become less and less and less. So in the eyes of the world, the goal is to tower, to tower over your marriage, to tower over your social circle, to tower over your place of work, to tower in the society, that the entire goal is to tower. And in our minds, we've internalized this, so it seems as if the only options before us is either to seek to tower, or that we become nothing, or at worst, that we cower under the, ta- under the powerful people. And the Bible here is saying there is a completely different option. Because, in fact, it's completely and utterly ridiculous that any human being, in the words of Ecclesiastes, a pillar of, a pillar of dust that has a longing for God at its center. <laughs> a creature that a microscopic presence that literally we can't see unless we have powerful microbes that can, microscopes that come into us can completely and utterly ruin our lives, kill us. And yet we believe that we can be like God. We believe that we can be and tower over the world like God's. And if we cannot tower, then there is nothing left. There is only diminishment. There is only cowering. There is only invisibility. And so the devil, he, you know, you're poor, you're not rich, you're not towering over money, you're not towering in the world of honor, you're not towering in terms of being known, you're not towering. And the Bible said there's a completely different option, which is to recognize that there is a God who does exist, who's created all things, sustains all things, will bring all things to their end. A God that does exist who is our creator that we are, we are alienated from and we cannot fix for ourselves. And this same God who created all things and brings all things to their completion and all things to their end. This same God who knows us perfectly with perfect knowledge 
when he knew us with perfect knowledge and knew our helplessness and knew how ludicrous our pretensions and our ambitions were, this same God, not because human beings called out to him to do mercy, but in the face of human hostility and enmity, without wanting God to save us, God still loved us so much he sent his one and only son to die upon the cross that whoever puts their faith and trust in him will not perish but have eternal life. That is a different option than tower or cower. And that same God who loves us and sends his son to die for us and does everything that's required to do to reconcile us to God, he calls me to be his servant. And in my flesh I want a tower. And in my flesh, I want a tower. In my flesh, I want a tower. And being gripped by the gospel is learning that the goal of life is not to tower. And you don't have to listen to the devil in the world that says that if you do not tower, you are invisible and you are going to cower or you are worthless. There's another option. I'm the servant of the Most High God. Not because I'm a superstar, but because he loved me. And he did everything that needed to be done for me to be reconciled to him. I can add nothing to it. My service adds nothing to it. And there's a very different way to live. There's a very different way to endure. I do not endure as a superstar. I endure as a servant of the Most High God. Could you put up the prayer, Andrew, please? Here's a take-home and if you can't get these, if you're interested in them, they all go up on the webpage on, on Monday or, or some early this week. Dear Lord, please make me a disciple of Jesus gripped by the gospel who is learning to see myself as your servant and then endure in living for your glory. Now, just before we go into the next part, you see, there's another thing about this. Not only the towering, the cowering, but well, here's the question. Does how I feel tell me who I am or what I should do? Like, I think I've answered that question. But it's a very, very powerful thing in our culture that how I feel tells me who I am and how I feel tells me what I should do. I mean, partly it's because in our culture, institutions have so much failed us. In our culture, like, you know, the institution of marriage has failed so many people. Universities fail us. The, the media fails us. You know, I, I mean, I put it in the bulletin. Basically, the entire knowledge class got everything about the U.S. election completely wrong. And virtually nobody in the knowledge class is saying, you know what, we got everything wrong. Like virtually nobody in the knowledge class is saying, we were completely wrong. Maybe we have a problem with hubris, that's excessive pride. have to show off I went to university every once in a while. <laughs> that's an aside. Anyway, never mind, I, won't, that's, I don't go down that road. Anyway, um, where was I? It's a very, very powerful belief in our culture that how I feel tells me who I am. And how I feel tells me how I should live and what I should do. And the Bible here is saying, yes, you have this basic sense that you need some type of transcendence. You need to be connected to transcendence in some way to understand who you are. You have 
that proper insight that there's a clue. And for many of us, sexual knowing is a type of transcendence. And so therefore, and other things connected to sexuality must be that source of transcendence, that transcendent emotion or experience that helps me to understand who I am. Or some other longing or yearning that, but it's, it's, those are hints that we not need to listen to God. Could you put up the, the, the second, sorry, uh, did I put that point up? Yes, you're good. And could you put up the prayer? Very simple prayer. It's a conversion prayer. It's a discipleship prayer. Dear Lord, please make me a disciple of Jesus gripped by the gospel and living for your glory. Because it's only in God that we ultimately understand our identity. In fact, the matter is, as, as, as many of us know, if you do what feels right, you're normally doing what's wrong. Is this really, there's this deep paradox that if you do what feels right, it's probably something wrong. But if you go against how you feel to do that which is right, you end up feeling better at least in the long run, because goodness is good for you. We were made to be at one with the created order. In fact, you know, when it's talking about the, the righteousness and all here, weapons of righteousness, in, in, that, in that text, it's really talking about, the word righteousness there is, is talking about being right with God and with his created order. Because we have a basic sense that we should fit with the created order, that we should fit with our creator. And so righteousness here isn't just talking about rule-keeping, and it's not talking about calculating harm. It's talking about as you get connected to God and as you start to learn to, to set aside the towering and the cowering and listening to his word, and, and as the gospel shapes us to be able to, to, uh, to want to do his word, and as the gospel draws us, and as the gospel models it, and that we start to live certain ways, what we're actually doing is starting to live in a way that fits with the created order, and with the creator who created that order and sustains it. Now, some of you might say, George, that sounds really, really wonderful, but you know... Um, then isn't there that text that uh, you didn't say anything about it, but didn't Ken read something about not being unequally yoked with believers? Like, George, this is the problem I have with Christian people, is, you know, you, you say things like that, and yeah, my heart starts to get stirred, but then, you know, and I don't think it's the devil, George, I think it's just, I start to, you know, look at Christians, and so many Christians, they live narrow, fearful lives. Narrow, faith fearful lives. And then it goes ahead and tells you not to be unequally yoked. And George, that sounds elitist. You know, it sounds like those people, you know, they don't want to try hummus because it's like it's it's like ethnic food. Hummus, good grief. Why wouldn't you try that? They don't want to try Thai food. You know, they don't want to do anything. You know, it's like all those baby boomers that still listen to music from when they were teenagers. Come on, give me a break. Why are those baby boomers so filled with fear? They're still listening to, mu- listening to music from when they were 16. And so many Christians are like that, George. Like, doesn't it go against what you just said? Let's look. 
verse 11. Chapter, no, not, yeah, chapter 6, verse 11. It's very interesting because, in fact, uh, it's a very good translation, but the, indivi- the, 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 the literal word underneath these next couple of words, it, it doesn't make good English, so they don't use it, but it's, it's actually what, I'll, I'll, we'll read it. Verse 11, chapter 6, verse 11, we have spoken freely to you. And actually the word freely is openly. Like, our goal, Paul is saying, is that, you know, if you folks knew what I was like before I met Jesus, if you knew how narrow and full of fear I was and condemnation before I met Jesus, and I'm a really sinful guy, I have so many problems, I fight with, I have all these problems, but as the gospel grips me, it creates within me openness and wideness. It's translated here as freely. We have spoken freely to you, Corinthians. Our heart is wide open. You are not restricted by us. And the word is, in the original language, it's the image of being narrowed. Narrowing. Restricted is a good translation. And narrowing would sound like weird, right? But that's actually the idea. But it's not as if as I, as I go on in Christ, I want to become narrower and narrower and narrower and narrower and narrower. My goal is an open proclamation and and have this sense of the world as an open place that we can go into. So we read again. We have spoken, verse 11, spoken freely to you, Corinthians. Our heart is wide open. You are not restricted, narrowed by us, but you are narrowed in your own affections. Restricted or narrowed in, in your own affections. In return, I speak as to children, widen your hearts also. Doing what is wrong and serving idols narrows hearts. But the gospel, as it's gripped, widens our hearts. (laughs) And what happens, you see, is that we, in, in churches, what happens is we want to turn from being shaped by the gospel and we want to turn it into religion. We want to turn it into spirituality, which just narrows us. But let's get to that text, the problem text. Verse 14. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. The Bible does say that. But Andrew, could you put that up as the point? We're not hiding it. We're going to talk about it. It's an important point for people to to see. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? That's this word righteousness being, being fitted, to fit in the created order and fit with our creator. Uh, or what fellowship, and the word there is actually communion, uh, koinonia, those of you who know a little bit about the Christian uh, uh, terms, what koinonia or fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial, which is the devil? And the word for accord there in the original language is the same word that we get symphony from. Um, so what symphony has Christ with the devil? Or what portion, what in common does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. That's the big idea. If, if you were to actually try to follow, if this was to be like not like written in a way that's sort of more the, the way like I guess teenagers write or kooky people write with lots of bolding and everything like that, it would be bolded because it's actually... It, from a literary point of view, it's like the, the key idea of this whole big text. For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. 
Therefore go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. Then I will welcome you and I will be a father to you. And you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. So this text, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. It's not promoting church splits. It's not saying that we should live in a ghetto. And it's not, uh, it's not saying that uh, we shouldn't get jobs, uh, that we shouldn't live amongst the community, that we shouldn't go to a whole pile of restaurants. What it's telling us is that in three particularly deep areas of our lives, we don't enter into formative relationships in these three areas of our lives. Not, not because we're better, not because it's not saying, it's not like reading an English, it's not like watching an English period drama where a, a noble person would never marry a commoner. What is it in the crown? With her common piggish nose and face, right? If you, if you watch the crown, and I think that's episode three, the way one of the people describe what we now refer to as the, the as Queen Elizabeth's mother. And it's it's not... Downton Abbey. It's not unequally yoked because we're superior. What it's just telling you is, you know, if in the very, very central areas of your life, you can't be going opposite directions. You can't be going opposite directions. Like, so one of those three intimate areas of your life, it's marriage. It's talking about sexual knowing. In particular, it's talking about marriage. Um... I, you know, in, in, the finan- in the financial post, on Saturdays I have this odd habit on the financial post. I, I look at this thing about retirement. And it's, I don't, I'm not interested in retirement. I just look at the profile of the person. And it, it, there's a different story every week. And this past week there was a 60-year-old woman making $11,000 a month and uh, worth, you know, a million and a half. And uh, it was all about her retirement re- preparedness. And I always look down the thing, and one of the things it gives you in the column is how much money a person spends in average on gifts, gifts or charity, and or charity. So this person making $11,000 a month, sure she's a great person, by the way, I don't mean to put her down, I don't know her. Guess how much money she gives to gifts or charity every month? If you guess zero, you're right. $11,000 a month, worth over one and a half million dollars. She gives zero dollars a year in gifts. Zero dollars a year to charity. Now let's say a huge tragedy befell me and and my wife died and I have to remarry. And this woman, maybe she's very pretty, maybe she's very witty and she's making a lot of money. My life would be more comfortable. How could I live with her I strive to give away 10% of what I make. She gives nothing away. And the 10% of what I, I give, I try to give to God, that doesn't count the money I want to spend on gifts. Like, how would we actually manage life together in that situation? And I'm a pastor. It's a bit different. If she married me, she'd know I have to go and do things on Sunday morning. I know. You know, it's your job. She'd tell her friends, it's his job. But for you who aren't pastors, and the text tells you to not forsake the assembling together, 
of yourselves. How's it going to work? You know, you go into that marriage relationship and say, yeah, yeah, what? And, and she says, okay, well, how's our money? Well, where's all our money going? Well, I, I wrote all those checks to, you know, to, to compassion and to a missionary and to the church. You gave $800 away this month? And on top of that, every Sunday morning when I would just like to sleep in, you go to that bleepity bleep church and on top of that, you want to go have this mentoring relationship with a friend at lunch hour rather than being on the phone with me. And on top of that, some other night of the week, you want to go to a Bible study? Are you crazy? How can you be married? How can you be married? If your lives are going very, very different directions, if you have very different values, how can you be married? This is a very, it's, I mean, in, in a lot of circles, it's not a very popular text. It's a very important text. And that doesn't even go on to talk about the fact that that's why Christians should have nothing to do with Ouija boards. They should have nothing to do with astrology. They should have nothing to do with anything. It's one of the reasons what if you take yoga, you should be deeply careful about yoga because yoga is completely and utterly designed to try to connect you to certain states of consciousness and relationships with, he, with Hindu gods with repeating certain words, even the postures. I know I'm not saying that you can't do yoga in such a way that it's just a type of stretching and Pilates, only spelt easier. Um, But it goes on to these other deep, intimate relationships, and that's why it's telling us. And it's telling us because God loves us, because he wants you to endure greatly in making a difference and being fruitful. Andrew, could you put up the prayer? Dear Lord, please make me a disciple of Jesus gripped by the gospel who is learning to say no to the relationships and involvements which take me away from the freedom that comes from being led by you to live well as I live for your glory. Let me tell you, folks, it is so much more freeing to be generous with your money than to be cheap. Sorry, I don't, want to, I don't want to offend people who are cheap here. I didn't mean to do that. I just want to bear witness to it. it. There is something freeing about not having money as an idol in your life and trusting God for part of having your net needs met. There, it's, it's, it's God. These, this, these words of God are for our freedom. And I already described... If you're connecting to idols and demons, it's what, this whole sermon began with what demons say into our ears. And the complete and utter difference. I mean, so many people who do... Some, some, I bet if you discovered that that man who just attacked those two young girls in Abbotsford, I bet he was listening to voices. And demons want you to kill people and they want you to die, but the God of the Bible dies for you. The world is completely different between the world of of the devil and of demons and of darkness and of idols. It is completely and utterly different from the world of the living God. It is the culture of death versus the culture of life. He does it because he wants you to be free. Sort of running out of time. Just want to be clear. This is not a, just a pep talk. If you just be patient with me for an extra second here. Um, I've heard this at lots of funerals. And I just heard it at a very recent funeral. 
and a person who just in their talk, because they want to say something about the deceased, they say, I just want to tell you all that the deceased, let's call him Bob, that as I was walking, thinking about what to say at this funeral, Bob wanted me to let you know he's fine. Bob wanted me to let you know he's fine. Don't worry about Bob. Now, okay, time out. Like, really? Really? But, you know, they mean very, 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 very well. People who say that, and I, maybe one of you have said that, and I, I, how many people have I offended this morning? You can have a little, maybe we should have a chart up there, Andrew. People could send in texts, offended, offended, offended. We could have a little chart. George keeps speaking, whoa, it's been a real offensive morning this week at Church of the Messiah. Uh, people mean well when they say that, but it's, we all know it's crap. And so maybe when I'm telling you that God loves you and all of these types of things, in fact, Andrew, could you put up the next, the final point? We are the temple of the living God. That's verse 16. What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. That means that God himself dwells amongst each of us as individuals and amongst Christians as a group. And that I will be their God and they shall be my people. That I will welcome you. I will be a father to you. You will be my sons and daughters. It is the Lord Almighty who is speaking. It is the Lord Almighty who meets with us in the center of who we are that dwells there. This is not me being sane, wishful thinking. (laughs) If this is God correcting me, then I'm in real trouble. No. Sorry, you didn't know I had my phone up here. I use it to try to keep track of how long I'm talking. That's never happened to me before. And, and, and really the funny thing is, it's from a Christian who should know that I'm in church. <laughs> I mean, he goes to an evangelical Bible teaching church. He should know that I'm probably in church. Anyway, I don't know what's going on there. So anyway, maybe somebody stole his phone and pressed that. That must be the case. That's, uh, it couldn't have been that person actually calling me. Here we are. We are the temple of the living God. Here's the thing. Why is this not just a fantasy? Because Jesus walked amongst us. Jesus claimed that all of the, that all of the Old Testament uh, claimed that God would send a deliverer, that God would send a Messiah. And Jesus came and said, I am that one that God has promised that would, uh, he would send a Messiah. And, 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 and all of the wisdom of the Old Testament and all of the goodness of the Old Testament, it's all connected. And Jesus says all of the things in the Old Testament that are good and true, they point to me. And to prove it, I am going to die upon the cross because I came to die and on the third day I will rise. And he said it time and time and time and time again. And then in history, he did die upon the cross. And in history, on the third day, just as he promised, the grave was empty. The tombstone was rolled away, not so he could get out, but so people could look in. And the tombstone was gone. It, 
the tomb was empty, the body was gone, and it wasn't just that the body was gone, but that over the next 40 days, Jesus appeared to 500 people at one time, he appeared to his mother, he appeared to people, the Bible is very clear, all of the historical records are very clear, nobody believed he would actually do it, nobody believed he would rise from the dead, everybody believed that that would be a complete and utter failure, that it was the end of Jesus, but the stone was rolled away, the grave was empty, the body's gone, and Jesus appears and he convinces hundreds and hundreds of skeptics that he is still alive and his death and resurrection vindicates that he, in fact, is God's provision to make us right with him. It is God, it is vindication that when his followers say that we are the temple of the living God, it is not like a person at a funeral saying that Bob is all right. In history, in reality, he is vindicated. And he can be known with our mind and with our faith. Please stand. Andrew, could you put up the final prayer, please? The final prayer is, Dear Lord, please make me a disciple of Jesus, gripped by the gospel, who is growing in remembering that you live within us as we live for your glory, that you live within us as we live for your glory. Uh, Friends, maybe you've been really struggling. The devil's been beating you up. Maybe you're like me. The devil likes to beat me up and then puff me up. He likes to play me like a yo-yo. I go from despair to pride. Can all be in the same car drive. And I'm not talking about driving to Toronto. I'm talking about driving 10 minutes. And maybe you're like me. There's no better time than just to say once again, Father, thank you for Jesus. Thank you for what he did for me on the cross. Please make me a disciple gripped by the gospel who is living for your glory. And Father, please silence the devil. Some of you, if you're really struggling with accusation, one of the best things you can do is tell another brother or sister that you're struggling with it and ask them to pray for you. And for some of us, it's a long obedience. God, the devil has his grips, and he can keep playing us like a yo-yo. But we can greatly endure as we remember that we are servants of the Most High God, that God himself lives within those who put their faith and trust in Jesus. And if you have not given your faith and trust to Jesus, there is no better time than right today. Ignore all my other prayers. Ignore the rest of the service and just call out to God and say, I don't know the words. I need you. I need your Son as my Savior and Lord forever. Right now, forever. Let's pray. Father, in the name of Jesus, not because of our righteousness or power, but in the name of Jesus, by his shed blood as his adopted children by grace, we ask that if there are any demons present, that in the name of Jesus they will be bound. In the name of Jesus they will be cast from here. In the name of Jesus that they will not return. And Father, we ask that you do not leave us swept empty, but that you would pour out your Holy Spirit deep within us with an even greater power. That as your Holy Spirit falls and as we dwell in your word, that you will make us grow in us day by day, more increasingly disciples of Jesus, gripped by the gospel, learning to live as your servants to bring you glory. And this we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.